Let's take our Bibles from Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, with them became partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of the unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted in to their own olive tree? It is one of the cardinal virtues for Christian living. In fact, it is an important virtue, whether it is the nature of your relationship with God or your relationship with one another. It has a profound impact on your life and, again, is essential for faithful Christian living. What quality is this? What virtue bears such weight and importance? Nothing shocking. Humility. Humility. Humility is absolutely essential. It it is something we find from the very earliest pages of Scripture and then is tracked throughout. Uh, We find examples positively of humble servants of the Lord. We find examples negatively of prideful, self-centered, egotistical individuals. The Bible has much love for those who humble themselves before God. The Bible has little love for those who make themselves proud before God. Humility is one of those tricky things, isn't it? It's one of those qualities that, that they, as they say, maybe you've heard this before, it's, it's, it's kind of like patience. You know, patience, you've got to be careful. Some of these qualities, you've got to be careful paying for pra- uh, praying for patience because God may put you in situations that require it, right? Well, praying for humility, wanting to be humble, that's tricky as well because how do I say, you know what? I've really gotten good at being humble. By the way, I'm great at it, all right? I am. You know, you can make the statement, it's the old preacher statement, I'm probably the most humble person I know, and I'm proud of it, right? I mean, these are the kind of things that make humility tricky. Now, on the one hand, we might encounter situations, circumstances that are positive 
that encourage humility. Those moments maybe when somebody does something for us, just just a, just a, a deep and sincere act of gratitude comes out of us, right? If somebody, you know, shows a, a particular kind of, of love or an act of grace toward you or serves you in some way, sometimes that can produce humility, right? And we might often say, we, I was really humbled by what you did for me the other day. So, positive example. Sometimes, though, humility is thrust upon us, Right? Not because of some positive circumstance, but often because of some negative circumstance. In fact, sometimes humility happens because you face something that is humiliating, right? Every now and then, it's good for us, humiliating things that may happen. You may be walking along the side of the road, talking to somebody in a car, and you fall into a ditch. That's just an example. It's not like it happened to me. Twice. Anyway, it's just just an example. Or you go go out to your car in the mall, you go up to your car, get ready to get in it, and it's not your car. And the owner shows up at the same time, right? There's all kinds of ways that God might bring humility to your life. This morning, Romans chapter 11 As we continue our look at this chapter, an important chapter, Paul is wrapping up this theological section of Romans, and and he's, he's teaching a much broader topic as he is pointing out how the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation, God's still saving people, and he's explaining this in light of the fact that a lot of Jews aren't believing and a lot of Gentiles are, and and so we've been tracking out what are really two points that that I think Paul goes back and forth between them throughout the chapter. We've we've looked at what is then God's current work of grace. God is demonstrating uh, His power to save people as, as He is extending that grace to Gentiles. We've noted how even though a majority of Israelites, of the Jews, are not believing, there are still some who are being saved. So, so Paul in this chapter talks about this great work of God's grace. We started last week looking at the second part of this, which is God's future work of grace. So amidst this discussion of what God is doing with the Jews, how currently they are being hardened, and how the hardening of the Jews opens the door for Gentiles to be saved, Paul also uses that as an opportunity to look forward and to say... This is what God is doing now, but there is a greater work coming. God is going to do a great and mighty work among the nation of Israel again. And Paul's point, as we noted last week, what was really pretty simple and straightforward. If God hardening the Jews, if their unbelief, if their rebellion against the gospel has produced such fruit among Gentiles, imagine the impact it would have on the globe if there were Jews in large numbers that responded to the gospel. And that was our focus last week. But now Paul is going to address what I think is a particular issue 
uh, going on in Rome. And, and, and really, you know, Paul in, in the last half of this chapter is kind of reflecting on two basic principles. And these, this is in your notes. These are blanks to fill in. Two basic principles related to this work of God's grace. Paul noted that we can be hopeful in what is God's saving work. But I think now, the verses we just read, Paul turns his attention to an important issue. And then the principle that you have in your notes and what we're going to look at now for the next few minutes, not only can we be hopeful in what is God's saving work, but we, ought, we should also be humbled by God's saving work. Again, humility can be hard to come by. And though there are a lot of ways God may bring humility into our lives, without a doubt, I think one of the best ways God brings humility into our lives, or at least forces the point upon us, is by forcing us to look at salvation and how we really got it and why we really got it. Now you may wonder, why, why is Paul doing this? Even in reading some of what we read just a moment ago, what's going on? To give you a little backdrop, it appears there's a problem in Rome. Given the fact that so many Jews have turned their back on the gospel and so many Gentiles have embraced the gospel, and as you can imagine, in a city like Rome, far removed from Jerusalem, in this church there are probably far more Gentiles than there are Jews. And it appears that the Gentiles were starting to think a bit too much of themselves. Maybe even wondering something like this. Well, if God has done that, if God has hardened, you know, even based on Paul's teaching, if this is what has happened, that the nation of Israel has turned their back on God and God has cast them off, I wonder, I wonder if it's because really the Gentiles, us, those who've gotten saved who aren't Jews, we're... We're kind of the super spiritual ones in the crowd. I think there must have been some among the congregation there in Rome that had failed to appreciate the true nature of what it means to be saved by God's grace. And then instead were thinking a lot about their own salvation. Thinking too much about themselves. Maybe even something like this, though no one would probably ever verbalize this in a church context, But maybe in our minds we might think it, God made a great choice when he saved me. So Paul's going to lay out an illustration here. An illustration that quite frankly may not be readily identifiable with us. Unless you've got a bunch of olive trees I'm unaware of, alright? Or if you do a bunch of vine work uh, that I am unaware of. Though we do have, of course, our fair share of grapevines, right? Paul's going to draw off this image. The image of a vine, its branches. That's not an uncommon image in the Bible, right? Jesus does this in John 15. to talk about how he is the vine and we are the branches. and, And we should bear fruit in accordance with being connected to the vine. And if we don't bear fruit, then we're only good to be whacked off and burned for fuel. Same image shows up in the Old Testament. Prophet Isaiah uses this language of vine and vineyard and vine dresser to describe how God lovingly planted and cultivated this vineyard, this this group of people known as the nation of Israel, and yet they have 
rejected him. They have turned their back on him and they've become an overgrown mess. So Paul's drawing on, on all of these images, I think, than, than to lay out what I would argue is an attempt to build a bit of humility into the people of God. By using this illustration of the vine and the branches to demonstrate these folks, especially these Gentiles, they shouldn't think too much of themselves. I think for you and I as believers, it's always good to be reminded of the nature of our salvation. God's saving us. God allowing His one and only Son at the cost of His own shedding of blood to the point of death to bear wrath, God's wrath, for our sin to be raised from the dead, to provide us with grace and the saving work of Jesus Christ, we would do well to remember God doesn't do any of that because we deserve it. God doesn't do any of that work because He looks down at our lives and thinks, you know what, this group of people would be a real asset to my kingdom. So let's bring them in because, wow, they're really sharp, they're skilled, they're educated, they've got money, they've got talent, they've got energy. That's the way you and I think about things. But that is not the way God thinks about His kingdom. But you and I need to be mindful of just what it means that we have been saved. And so I think a text like this speaks directly to us. Like I've said all along the way, unless there's something about your genealogy I'm unaware of, most folks in this room are pure-blooded Gentiles, all right? That's what we are. And so, let's follow Paul's language here. Go back to verse 16. Paul starts off with one image, and then he seems to, to move off of that. He begins in verse 16 by saying, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. So, so really, his first image takes us to the grain offering. You know, When they would harvest the grain, they were required to bring a first fruits of it, meaning they were to bring a portion of the harvest as a way to dedicate the entirety of the thing to God. So, so Paul's point, though it may sound odd to say it because he's talking about, you know, he's talking about the grain, then he's talking about, about the lump. So if the first fruit is holy, the lump also. What he means is the first grain that was given indicates the sacredness of the entirety of it. So that lump of dough that you make from the grain that also is holy. Here's what I think he's getting at. I think he would describe the, those initial grains being the patriarchs, the initial work of God among the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And the lump being the, 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 the children of Israel to follow. And us. So right from the beginning, how does that make you feel? You came to church this morning, and the pastor called you a big lump of dough. All right, how does that make you feel, right? Some of you may think, that's exactly how I feel. But uh, that is, uh, no, that's what he's getting at, though. If, if the root was whole, if this first part, if the, if the harvest part, the first fruits, if this initial offering was good and right, then what comes after it is also good and right. And, and really what Paul is going to do, he's going he's to use this as a way to indicate to the Gentiles so the nation of Israel is still important to God. They still matter. 
God's not given up on them. This has been the argument all the way throughout. Just because they're hardened, just because they're rebellious, God has not cast them off entirely. God is still saving some. God will save a lot more in the future. And and this then is the image to undergird that. Because originally it was holy, sacred work. And so whatever came from that, still God's goodness is displayed toward them. They are still God's chosen people. All right, so for whatever reason, though, Paul jumps off of that, and he gives us a second image, and this is the one about the vine and the branches. So then he goes on to describe in the same kind of way, verse 16, if the root is holy, so are the branches. So same idea. You've got the root, and it's good, and it's pure, and it's healthy, and the branches coming off are going to be good and pure and, and healthy, and that's kind of the image that he's drawing here. So... The branches that came off of that original vine are good. Again, you may read that and think, so what's he getting at? So Paul goes on to explain. And if some of the branches were broken off, those are the Jews that were hardened. Those are the Jews that are living in rebellion. Those are those who, who have heard the gospel, as he talks about in chapter 10. They've heard the message. It's been presented to them time and time again. And they have rebelled against it time and time again. So he's using this as a way to describe it is they who have been broken off, you being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them. So now he's talking about you know, the, a work that would have been done that he's already described to this point. He's already told them. Now, so these Jews... They've been rebellious, they've they've gone off into unbelief, they've been hardened, so that you as Gentiles have an open door here into the gospel. And he's describing this as, as the vine dresser, who's tending and cultivating a vine that he's been working on for many, many years, and he sees over here wild vines. He doesn't want them to still be wild, so he takes out those wild vines and he grafts them into the healthy, cultivated vine. Now, I read a bunch of stuff here about this. I know it may shock you. I'm not an expert on horticulture, okay? Uh, I don't do much grafting of vines. Uh, I don't do much of that kind of work. It's not been my thing. I'm not experimenting with that. I'm not digging up vines. Uh, I may use Roundup on a vine here and there. But otherwise, vine work is not my thing. There, there are some discrepancies on exactly what may have been going on in the first century. Though the one I preferred the, the best, that seemed to make the most sense to me, is in fact, this is not something they would have done. It's not something they would have done. Grafting in a wild vine. In fact, some even suggest it wasn't even thing they, a thing they could have done. That's what some even suggest. It isn't something that would have been possible. And yet, this is exactly the work that's being described that God is doing with the Gentiles. That which is wild, rebellious, pagan, ungodly, in the ultimate sense of the term, he's taking that out and he's making it as a work of his own power and his own grace, something of his own effort, he is grafting that in. Yes, branches have been broken off, and those branches have been broken off so that these wild shoots can find a place on the vine. Paul is describing this as the work of salvation God's doing 
among the Gentiles. Now let me point something out here, something we've talked about all along the way, but this to me is such a profound illustration of this. Because of this particular image is the work of grafting a wild vine in a wild branch into the vine is this work something where the branch does his work and the vine dresser does his work and they both come together no does the branch have any work involved in the grafting process nope how is the branch going to get in the vine? Does it uproot itself and shimmy itself on over? You thought I was going to shimmy, didn't you? All right. And sh- shimmy itself. There was almost too much hip shaking, but okay, we can't, can't have your pastor doing that. Is, is that branch going to get up and going to connect itself over here to the vine and kind of snuggle in there and say, look what I did? See, this is the point I think Paul's trying to make. How does the wild branch get into the vine? The vine dresser. That's it. That is, that is the only one responsible. That's the only way that it happens. How is it that the Gentiles are included in this grand plan of redemption? God's sovereign grace. Period. That, that is it. God is the one who does this work. It's not like I do my part, God does his part, and we meet in the middle. I've talked about this. Paul, for sure, has talked about this in Romans. But this illustration, I think, just bears it out even more. So that, so that Paul then wants to go on to say, the, the last part of verse 17, and with them became partaker, became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. That's a funny word, right? Even just saying it. Saying fatness. Because the language of fat in our culture is not always met with positive reactions, right? In fact, a lot of times when we talk about fat, we even say it like that, right? More often than not, it has this this negative connotation uh, in our culture. But when, when Paul talks about fatness, he's talking about richness. He's talking about that stuff that makes stuff taste good. Why is olive oil even close to having any flavor? Because it's got fat. Why do we love bacon? There's one or two of you out there who don't like the fat. All right, I understand. There's some of us who would just eat the fat in fact, we have an entire kind of eating of the pig that we call what? Fat back, right? Because that's where the flavor is. I mean, if you hand me something that is fat-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, it's going to be Gleason-free. All right? I'm just telling you that right now. That gets an applause. Are you serious? You people, you people. <laughs> so, Paul, so Paul uses this language as, as a way to stress, here's what you have benefited from, Gentiles. You, you, you've been made partakers of something you didn't earn. You don't deserve it. You can't look at this and say, yeah, good choice, God. I was your guy. 
Paul's saying you, you've become partakers of that which is a glorious, sovereign work that goes back a long, long time, all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You've been grafted in to this divine work of God's grace all along the way throughout history. You've been partakers then of this goodness and richness of God. And so then he presses that point, then to, then, then to say in verse 18, do not boast against the branches. So this is why I think something's going on in Rome. I think some of those Gentiles are turning their noses up at the Jews. Clearly, we are a superior group of people. And that's why God has given the boot to most of your brethren and let us in. Paul is saying, do not boast against those branches. He goes on to add, but if you do boast... Remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Now, this is interesting because he is suggesting something we just sang, right? I do not boast in anything, but if I do boast, I boast in what? The crucified, resurrected Savior, right? So there is a kind of boasting, believer, that is okay. It is the boasting in Christ as, as the one in whom salvation is found and in Him alone. Yes, if you're going to boast... Boast in Christ. Remember, you're not the one doing the work here. You're not the benefit. The root doesn't benefit from the branch. The branch benefits from the root. You've been, you've been included in something you don't have a right to be a part of. It's not a right. You don't deserve it. It's been given to you. Now you can tell it's as if Paul's having now a conversation with somebody. Somebody comes back at him in verse 19. You'll say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Come on, Paul. What do you mean I'm not special? Clearly I'm special. I've got to be. Because branches were broken off. And now here I am. What else would I not, how could I not be special? My grandmother always told me I was special, right? Surely I am. Paul says, well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. In in other words, God didn't do this because He thought, you know what? I need room for wild, pagan, rebellious branches. I need to make room for them, so I'm going to knock off the rebellious branches and put these rebellious branches on here. In other words, why were the branches knocked off? Not because He needed to make room for super-spiritual Gentiles but because they didn't believe. Because they didn't believe. We, talk, we talked about this. Though, though part of the work of hardening is a work of God, part of the work of hardening is that we harden our own hearts. Paul says, look, this is what's happened. They, they were broken off. This was an act of God's judgment. And you benefit from that act of judgment. Because then he goes on to say, verse 20 again, because of unbelief they were broken off, And you stand by faith. Again, I think this is another important shot at what is the the real work of salvation. They were broken off because they didn't believe. The only reason you are a part of this vine at all, the only reason your branch is is enjoying the goodness of this root of God's grace, the only reason is because of faith. Now, Paul didn't explain it here, but he explains it in plenty other places. 
You've got to read what is implied here and underneath here and in the rest of New Testament theology. Paul's not saying they are a part of the vine because of faith they mustered up in themselves and made themselves believe. The faith is something that was given to them by God in the first place. That's what he's getting at. Don't think too highly of yourself. The means by which you're even a part of this vine is something God did for you and to you. It's not something you did yourself. This is God's work of grace. So then he, then he finishes verse 20 there. Do not be haughty, but fear. Whoa. Did you see that one coming? It's a a bit of of a turn, right? In other words, you know, all this so far, you know, we talked about how much of this chapter is is, is really positive and about this good work of God's grace. God is saving people. God will save people. As we noted a couple of weeks ago, God is saving the hard cases and the hard cultures. But now Paul turning his attention here to give a balanced view of this. Yes, we are talking about God's goodness, but we should also remember the God that we are dealing with is a God who judges sin. He is a God who brings His wrath to bear on unrighteousness. When He says, do not be haughty, in other words, don't don't let this pride take over, don't think you're something super spiritual because God has grafted you in, instead, fear God. You should fear God in thinking about this work. This is why a careful consideration and meditation upon the gospel produces humility because it forces me to see myself and it forces me to see God. And so he says, so don't be haughty, but fear. It's a topic that doesn't always get a lot of press in the evangelical world today, the fear of God. Oh, oh, we want God to be my daddy up in heaven and I crawl into his lap and he hugs me and loves me and we want that. But how about the God of wrath and justice who, who will send unbelievers to hell for eternity? Is that a God that... See, he does, that God doesn't make us warm and fuzzy, right? That's the God that our culture hates. That's the God that progressive, liberal, unbelieving Christians want to get, get out of the Bible. Quite frankly, he's in here a lot. Old Testament, New Testament. I don't see how you'd have a God any other way. A God who's all love is not God at all. In other words, if, if the only thing it is is this kind of love that you and I perceive to be love, if that is not also coupled with what is God's justice and wrath, so you've got, you've got a half God. You've got a half God. So Paul rightly corrects these things and said, don't be haughty but fear. And notice why he says that. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. You want to talk about a shot. Again, it's straight at the pride and the self-centeredness of these Gentiles. He goes on to explain. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but towards you goodness if you continue in His goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So, so Paul holds up for these, these two realities, God's goodness and God's justice, God's grace and God's judgment. The the balance I think we should have in in regarding who God is. Now, I don't want you to be thrown off here by Paul's language. When Paul says you should fear because, in fact, 
he didn't spare the natural branches, in other words, if he was willing to execute judgment upon his chosen nation, surely he would execute that upon you, right? Now, somebody may hear that and may think, oh, well, now, does this mean that I could possibly lose my salvation? Does this mean, Pastor, that somewhere along the way, God could decide, I'm not doing enough, and so God could cut me off the vine? Well, no. That's not what he's talking about. This, in fact, is a classic way to describe what is called the perseverance of the saints, meaning the idea that believers who are genuinely saved Part of the evidence of genuine salvation is patience and endurance. In other words, it's not just what happens the the moment I get saved or a week later or a year later. It is an ongoing commitment and evidence of the work of the gospel in my life. In fact, here's what I think Paul is getting at. Paul is describing this kind of person kind of person who gives an initial evidence of salvation, maybe even comes forward during a service, maybe even cries a lot, and maybe even for a period of time uh, there is a change of behavior, but at some point along the way turns his back on all of that. I get this question sometimes. Pastor, I have a friend. I have a family member. In their teenage years, here's what they did, and, and they, they trusted Christ, and they went through all the steps, and they, got, they, they then were committed, and they started reading their Bible. Maybe they went to Bible college, they thought they were going to seminary, you know, whatever. They may add any number of, of descriptions to say this seemed genuine, but now, 20 years later, they don't believe any of it. They're not even sure they believe in God at all in the first place. So, Pastor, you, you, mean, you mean to tell me... Uh, that that person didn't lose his salvation? Yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. It's impossible to lose your salvation. You can write that down. You don't have to, though. It's already in the Bible. All right? It's impossible to lose your salvation. You say, well, how do you explain that guy? He was never saved. He was never saved in the first place. He gave the appearance of being a branch on the vine. See, you and I don't have God's perspective. It can look like somebody has been grafted in when, in fact, they have not. How do we know they're not grafted in? Well, if they turn on the gospel, I'm telling you, they've never been saved. If somebody comes along and tells me, I no longer believe Jesus died on the cross. I no longer believe he rose from the dead. I don't believe in any of that stuff. Then you never believed it the first time. Not in a saving way. So so this is what Paul is warning us about. He's warning us about taking our salvation for granted, assuming that if, if we just went through some kind of ritual motion of walking down an aisle or praying a prayer, that's how I would translate it in today's situation. This, this, this is not the evidence that we're looking for. Paul is saying, look, Gentiles, you better think very carefully about the saving work of God. You, got, you, you, you shouldn't come at this with any kind of pride or any kind of boasting. Understand both God's goodness and God's severity. Continue in God's goodness and you'll, that'll be evidence of salvation. But if you don't, it's evidence you're not saved. And you will be cut off. Verse 24, then Paul turns this around. 
For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So this is how he finishes it. He says, look, you, you were brought in by God's good grace, and, and if God can do that with a wild branch, what about these who naturally belong to the vine? Surely they can also be grafted in. So this is another reference then to this future work of God. Surely it is possible for God to save Jews. If they originally belonged to this vine, of course he can. So he's trying to encourage these folks in Rome to understand God is a God who is saving people. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then the Gentile. This is a real work of God, though there aren't many Jews being saved now. They will be. You Gentiles shouldn't think too much of yourself. Let let me give you two other points that you can write down, and and they are simple points of conclusion and application. Here's why thinking carefully about salvation should humble us. We should be humbled by the knowledge that we are saved by God's good grace. We're humbled by knowing that that is the means by which God decided to save me. Anytime we start to think like we are a gift to God, (laughs) we're headed down the wrong path. If we ever allow a thought to come into our minds, yeah, I was a good choice. Man, I've got a lot of skill. (laughs) Yeah, good work, God. You know, give him an applause for saving you as if he made a good decision. No, I, I need to be mindful that the only reason I'm saved The only reason I'm a part of this vine at all is only, only God's grace. His grace. I don't deserve it. The only reason I have what I have, it's not because of me, but it's because of what God in Christ has done to me and for me by His Spirit. It's only in the crucified, resurrected Savior. Free gift of God to me. But I think it's also humbling because we know we are saved from God's just punishment. We are saved from what is a just punishment. I think sometimes we can also think, not only, uh, yeah, I was, it was a pretty good idea for God to save me, but maybe we could also think, you know what, really, I, I, I was never as bad a sinner as so-and-so. Sometimes maybe we never look back on our lives and think ourselves very worthy of what would be God's wrath, but in fact, we are. We are worthy of it. That is what we deserve. We've gotten nothing. We've gotten nothing that we deserve. All that we've been given is a gift of God's good grace to us. So let me ask you about your humility. (laughs) What is your posture toward God and toward the gospel that has saved you? As a believer, I would encourage you to think carefully about this. Do we think often about this? Do we ensure that our view of ourselves is funneled through this gospel Of course, I'd also make an appeal here to anybody who's not a believer that you would trust Christ as your Savior. To know there is a goodness to God, but there is also a severity to God. To know there is a God who gives grace, but then there is this God who is to be feared. And if you've never come to that place where you've confessed that you're a sinner, believe Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, and ask God to save you based on nothing but His own good grace in Christ to save you, I'd encourage you to do that. I'll be down front. If you'd like me to pray with you, if you'd like to know more about this, And even after the service, I'd love an opportunity to speak with you if you want to know what does it take to be made right with God. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, 
We'll, we'll sing a newer song, but one that I dearly, dearly love. All I have is Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us. Thank you for time in your word. Thankful for the goodness of your gospel. Thank you for rescuing us from your just punishment. Father, may that indeed produce in us spirit-led humility to view ourselves through the gospel and to know that any boasting that we have is to boast in Christ. And so, Father, may we again in this time allow your word to be brought to bear in our lives and may we offer our lives up to you and that you might be blessed and honored by the sacrifice we bring. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.